Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Najahi Events and our new sponsor, the incredible company Smartcast. More about them later. As I've been doing this podcast now for some time, it's interesting for me to learn about people's mindset around money, their lack of wanting to learn about cryptocurrencies, seems a bit too complicated, a bit too confusing. And so I wanna try and bring you as much content as I can from people that really know the ins and outs of this particular subject. So with the creation of digital currencies and so many significant innovations in the evolution of money, you might be asking yourself, what is money? Undoubtedly, it's one of the most important questions we can ask ourselves right now. And my guest this week is here to help answer this question. Robert Breedlove is one of the most interesting thinkers in the Bitcoin space at the moment. He was a career CFO and ex-hedge fund manager before discovering Bitcoin in 2014. In 2017, he became very focused on it and realized that Bitcoin was a solution to central banking and the corruption of money. To him, Bitcoin has exposed the greatest con in human history central banking since then he's been educating his audience on how bitcoin can fix the distrust around money i'm really excited to speak with robert and hear his views on central banking the corruption of money the future of cryptocurrencies and to get to the bottom of the question what is money cue the music Robert, thanks for coming to join us on the show today. Somebody I've wanted to get on the show for some time is someone that, that really gives uh, a different angle, I think, to uh, what a lot of people are thinking about at the moment. But if we go back to 2007, there was a, uh, a well-documented piece by a guy called Peter Schiff that came onto CNBC and he started predicting what was going to happen to the markets while others were saying that's a load of nonsense. He was saying that borrowing was out of control and quite simply that the markets were going to crash and have an almighty crash. And once that happened, it was almost like he was a bit of a messiah. He predicted the future almost. Mm. However, in recent times, he's really, really anti everything crypto related and, and believes that bit, bitcoin's a load of nonsense so maybe i can first start by asking you a question why do people that have have, have got themselves elevated themselves to a position uh, within the investment space in the united states why are there people still out there going this is nonsense it's not going to work well it's a great question <clears throat> and my best estimation is that bitcoin is something so far outside of most people's worldview that it's hard to assimilate. I mean, you can't even really reconcile it to most worldviews to actually understand Bitcoin, like at least for me to understand. And I'm a, I'm someone that likes to understand the very foundation of a thing, the why, right? I need to ask why five or 10 or 50 times to get to the bottom of it before it implants itself in my my brain and with bitcoin the key to understanding it is this question that i made the namesake of my show i think it's so important which is what is money right we we're all hustling for money almost every human on this planet spends most of their life in pursuit of money to one degree or another yet and we th we also think through money right we're always like it's how we perform economic calculation it's how we compare prices and make decisions and it's how we run our business. It's how we run our household. Yet very few of us have taken the time to stop and pause and actually take off the glasses 
and say, what is this? What is this technology or instrument or concept that I'm looking at the world through? Um, and I think that maybe that's why it's just so like, you can't just take your traditional, I, here's a phenomenon I've noticed is that people, especially in say wall street or traditional finance, I come, I, my background is as a certified public accountant. It's my education. I have a master's degree in accounting and finance. I was a career CFO. So mostly in tech, but dealing with money operations, tech people with that finance type background tend to be even more blind to Bitcoin or more resistant to it, which is kind of a paradox. Cause like the guys that know money, the most make the most money deal with money, the most have the least knowledge about the foundational, uh, foundational aspects of money, frankly. And so but that's, that's scary though, isn't it? When you think about that, cause you don't want those guys to think like that. It is. And I think it's a testament to how far we have come away from the essence of money. Like we, here we sit in 2022, we're 50 years into this global fiat currency experiment. If you rewound the clock 200 years, I mean, almost everyone would tell you gold is money, right? There's like people know that a paper certificate is nothing right maybe it's a claim to gold okay maybe like is the issuer actually going to make good on his obligation when i go in to turn in the bank note what was formerly called a warehouse receipt to the warehouse operator to obtain the gold well if he does then great the paper functions as money but if he doesn't then it's just paper yet today you know by virtue of a lot of things we we've we've increased the economization of the world to a great extent through globalization, most recently through digitization. So we've created a huge abundance of wealth and it's, it's enabled us to, it's enabled this fiat currency scheme to run for a much longer period than it otherwise would have. Um, and we can get into the details of why, but I guess the punchline would be fiat currency inflation is a form of taxation which I've talked about a lot. Taxation itself is theft, which is something I've talked about a lot. Um, we've created much more economic surplus for fiat currency inflation to harvest effectively. So long as this globalization and, and more recently digi digitization dynamic was running, that we could keep running this scheme. And like no one really feels the pain, right? No one feels it because... There's more surplus being created. So if a little bit's being skimmed off the top, you don't really feel it as much as you, as you otherwise would have. So I think that has just conditioned us or, or allowed us to become very detached from the principles of what money is. And now we're all, you know, we're very dependent on this system in a way, not just physically, like, you know, if you live in the Western world and you're even semi-affluent, you probably have things being shipped to your house and, you know, the, the markets work, restaurants are open. I mean, COVID notwithstanding, <laughs> restaurants are open. You can buy cars, you can order things, you can participate in global capital markets, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so all like all the things work. So you almost never question the bottom of the thing and the bottom of the thing is money. But yeah, good the point. I, I guess sort of a punchline there is just like you, we all know another interesting phenomenon is that 
we all know gold is valuable. It is embedded in our metaphors even. We say like a, a guy is as good as gold or this is the gold standard of whatever good or service it is. So we get that. We get gold is valuable. We understand there's some relationship to gold as money, but we don't understand why gold. Why did gold become money? And I think that's the key, actually. So the like Peter Schiff's of the world, I get especially bothered by because he's out here hawking gold nonstop, but he will not give you an intelligently, intellectually honest answer as to why gold became money. Because if he did, then he would basically be setting the stage for why Bitcoin is the most superior form of money we've ever had. It disrupts gold across all the properties that make money money. Um, so that leads us into another rabbit hole, but I'll, I'll leave it open to you where you want to go with that. No, 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 please, let's take it down there because I think, I, I mean, we're in a part of the world over here. We're very close to India. Um, India, uh, the Indian rupee used to be the currency of this country mm. 50 years ago. And so there's a real strong connection with India. And India is famous for being a gold buyer. Um, Indians are crazy about gold in, in all facets, you know, whether that's jewelry mm. or whether that's to hold as, as bullion. And so there's a there's a real kind of connection to that. And it's almost mm. like the, their connection to, to gold is being questioned now because of Bitcoin. It's like, should, should we have the loyalty to gold that we had or should we really be pushing down the path? And, you know, that population's over a billion people mm -hmm. pushing down the path of being more crypto, or particularly Bitcoin holders, rather than the traditional gold that we would hold. Yeah, India is an interesting, interesting experiment because, they, like you said, they have a cultural fetish for gold, right? They, they love yeah. gold. They, it's... Um, I haven't ex I haven't been to India myself, but I've heard a lot about this. I have I've spoken with um, many people from India and India Indian descent that have described this this cultural dynamic. And I would, I mean, I'm somewhat speculating here based on my knowledge of just the history of money. But you know, there was a great deal of colonialism in India, right? So yeah, it, it you know the UK largely. Um, dominated India. They, they confiscated a lot of wealth from India. Um, a, a large mechanism they used to do that was actually because England went on to the gold standard earlier, whereas India remained on a silver standard. And I've, I mean, the numbers I've seen are staggering. Uh, I don't recall the exact dollar amount, but it's in the trillions of how much England was able to pilfer from India essentially through this dynamic. And so the lesson there, you know, with choosing your base monetary standard between gold and silver is like, whichever one is more difficult to produce, which is another way of saying is a more sound store of value, it will allow you to outcompete less sound store of value base money economies in the, in the open market. So in addition to the colonialism, UK was also able to deploy capital there um, in a way that was was uh, outcompeting local Indian business. So there's a great line in the book, The Bitcoin Standard, written by, written by Safadina Moose, and he says, I'll paraphrase it, it's impossible to insulate yourself from the consequences of someone else holding a money that is harder than yours. So there's a distinct 
game theoretic, unavoidable. You cannot insulate yourself from it. You can't ignore it. You can't run away from it. Like so long as you seek to preserve and increase your net worth across time, which is true for every individual, every organization, every country, we all, wealth is energy. We all want to increase our, our energy profile. And so long as you're dependent on the market to do that, which the market is the sole generator of wealth in the world, then you have every incentive to hold the money that no one else can debase. The, the money that is maximally resistant to debasement or inflation, that is the sound strategy, always, full stop. You can't do anything about it, right? To try and argue your way out of it or intellectualize why you're going to use silver versus gold, none of it will matter. Like Darwinian reality will just eat you alive. And so this this debate now in India between gold and Bitcoin, like I hope they're paying attention because in terms of counterfeit resistance, we've never had anything more perfect than Bitcoin. Bitcoin's perfectly counterfeit resistant. It's a fixed supply of 21 million. It's globally auditable. Nobody can change the rules. It's pure digital information. You know, you can put it on your brain across a border. You can uh, secure it in these very unique ultra high security custody schemas like multi-signature. So, I mean, there's not a dimension that Bitcoin is not superior to gold other than established history. I mean, Bitcoin is just a 13-year-old digital upstart, effectively, uh, out-competing gold. You know, I that would this would have sounded like strong words maybe five years ago when I first got into Bitcoin, but today it's like, no, it's the fastest-growing asset in history. And it's nothing has ever reached a trillion dollar market cap in 12 years. That's unheard of. And every function or service that gold renders, Bitcoin renders much more effectively, much more efficiently to a much higher degree. So, you know, <laughs> hopefully India has learned the lessons of history and chooses Bitcoin over gold. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm no doubt it will get there. The average man on the street takes his salary every month in, in dollars or here we have dirhams, which is tied to the US dollar. All he cares about is making sure that that, that, that dollar amount or that, that dirham amount can go up each year. He can use that money to do the kind of things he wants to do, take his family on vacation, save for his retirement and stuff. But that's, and, and, and surprisingly for me, there is a huge lack of understanding of the impact of inflation on money. Mm -hmm. The fact that, you know, officially it's at 7% in the US, it's 5.4 in the UK, but unofficially much higher and in developing countries even more. Now, I lived in Brazil in the 90s. And when I moved to Brazil, they just came out of hyperinflation. Mm. And that meant when you got paid your wages at the end of every month, you had to spend it straight away. Mm-hmm. You would go to the supermarket and a loaf of bread. Do you remember when they used to put the, the, the sticker prices on the, on, with the gun on the, on, on the mm -hmm. stuff mm -hmm. before barcodes? They would change the prices three times a day. Right. Is that, which, which, when I first arrived there, without using bad language, was a head fuck. It was like, what? Right. What are we dealing with here? But it made the Brazilians really, really mathematically adept because yes. they had to understand numbers. Like, they had no choice but to. And so... I became acutely aware of the impact of hyperinflation 
on the value of the Brazilian hay and, and the money that people had to spend. But people, people typically still seem a bit oblivious to it. They leave their money sat in a bank account. You know, there's a huge amount of cash reserves sitting all over the world in various banks at 0.1% or maybe a little bit more than that, but no more. And mm-hmm. can't, can't see the impact inflation is having on their ability to grow wealth or their ability to, to retain wealth. Right. Then Bitcoin comes along and there's, there's the people that got in and understood it. The people that have slowly understood it and have dabbled and have kind of like, I've got 10% of my portfolio in it. So I, you know, I'm doing it. I'm doing a bit of it, but it still means there's 90% of what they've got that's going down in value. How does how do you educate people to a point where the penny drops so they they know what to do? Well, that is a very difficult question to answer. Actually, <laughs> I'm <laughs> sorry. Much more much more of an art than a science. Um, and this is someone like I say that as someone has devoted my life to education. Actually, like the I've always been a lifelong learner, but more recently it has become apparent to me that my learning is valuable to others. Like I need to share, I need to learn out loud, so to speak. And I started this with the writing and then the writing became people inviting me onto their show to talk about my writing. And then the talking became popular and it's just, it's become a whole career for me. I've literally pivoted my entire career, which has been a funny experience because I originally set out to be this nondescript, independently wealthy private guy in the hedge fund business. <laughs> and now I basically just dumped all of that and said, I'm going to just step into this spotlight thing at le- in the Bitcoin world, at least to just share what I'm finding. Um, and so to get to your question specifically, it's like, there's a real danger in denominating yourself in fiat currency of any kind. Um, Again, I described earlier how we are looking through money. Money is a perceptual apparatus. It's like language. It's the, It's been called the language of value, actually. So if you are perceiving stock market performance, for instance, in the Venezuelan Bolivar, mm-hmm. well, that's the best performing stock market in the world. It's up thousands, tens of thousands of percentage. Well, that doesn't make any sense, though, because the currency is collapsing. What's going on? It's like, oh, it's not that there's actual productive value and want satisfaction being generated by this equities market in Venezuela. It is that the unit of economic perception is being diminished, right? So there's this weird, like, inversion that has – I've described this as like a computer virus on the minds of humans. If you Mm. can – if you can inflate a currency at the right pace, like you can't just hyperinflate it because it loses all of its meaning and relevance and people are, are reduced to barbarity effectively. But if you inflate it at the right pace, you can trick people into thinking, oh, wow, my house is more valuable than last year. My equity portfolio is more va- more valuable than last year. My whatever, all my private investments, they're going up. But so long as they are ignorant to this perceptual function of money that it's actually being diminished, then they just, uh, 
it's a way to trick people ultimately. And so one way to wash this out that's very important is you can take, say, the past 10 or 15 years of the stock market bull run here in the U.S., the S&P 500. If you denominate that instead in gold or you denominate it in the changes in the Federal Reserve balance sheet year over year, you'll see the true picture. Like the stock market is flat to down once you denominate it in hard money or or uh, net out monetary expansion effectively. So, you know, you were talking about South America and the Argentine inflation is something I've heard a lot about. You know, I spoke to Sailor for a long time on the show. He had the mil- he had a million dollars in one of his subsidiaries down there. They did a forced conversion, dollars to pesos. Yeah. And then they confiscate 90% of it. It's like a two-day affair. It's like you're you're forced you think you're safe. You're like, I'm in U.S. dollars. I'm in an Argentine bank, but I'm in U.S. dollars, so I'm fine. Well, what, what happens? The government steps in, applies force, force converts you to pesos, steals 90% of it. Um, I've heard that you know, at, at sailors level. I've also heard this about individuals that lived through that, and it was very mm-hmm. devastating. People I knew that had you know, intergenerational wealth were reduced to poverty in that event. So mm-hmm. it's a very stark reminder that risk happens fast, like specifically counterparty risk. If your wealth or your assets or your property are subject to the whims or opinions of someone else, you're in a bad position, right? That you're in a bad position because all you need is one guy or one group to change their mind and you're fucked, basically. Excuse my French, but that's what happens. No worries, no worries. So another anecdote of like the point here is, you know, in Weimar, Germany, you were describing they were changing the prices with the sticker guns often, right, at, at the grocery store. In Weimar, Germany, this is back in the 20s uh, when they were undergoing their own hyperinflation, things got so bad that they would get paid on a, I'm assuming it's a Friday, and they would go to the pub, right, to drink. And they would buy all of their drinks at the beginning of the night. <laughs> because by the end of the night, they would have increased prices multiple times. So you can see like it's these anecdotes point to the obviousness of how anti-economic inflation is like, and, and imagine that like flip it on the, the merchant, the barkeep or the, the grocery store operator to stop and have to reprice everything every, you know, few days, few minutes, few months ever. It's crazy. Like I, I have um, some friends in Turkey. And they own a number of cafes, restaurants. They've gone through this recently. It's like Mm -hmm. it is overwhelmingly detrimental to your operational efficiency to have to stop your operation, run all these complex calculations and reprice everything and hope you guessed right. You know, hope you did it enough to where you're profitable. But then Mm -hmm. the faster the currency is being debased, the more often you have to do it up to the point of having to reprice your drinks five times in a night. So it's, it's uh, well, hold it's on a insane. minute. Hold on. I, I think yeah, it is insane, but I think a lot of people will think, yeah, but that won't happen to me. That doesn't happen here. And and and, and isolating cases like, like I spoke about in Brazil, you've just spoken about in Argentina mm-hmm. and Germany. I think if there was, if people were aware of all of these examples of where this has happened, and we've mentioned mm-hmm. just a few. I mean, you know, take Zimbabwe. You know, I've I've got a many billion dollar note somewhere sitting around, which right. is worth no no more than a few pence, and you know, Zimbabwe 
had that problem. Lots of other African countries have been through that. Nigeria with the Naira, you've got your black market money. I think if people were then aware of how many times this type of stuff has happened mm-hmm. uh, over and over, over time, maybe it would stop people to think, could this possibly happen to me? Is there a way I can be uh, or, or position myself safer than right. I, than I currently am? Well, that's a great point. And one thing that I've discovered in my study of monetary history that no one know. every time I say this, people are blown away. So like, the average life of a fiat currency is 27 years. There have been thousands and thousands and thousands of attempts since ancient China, right? At this, this attempt at fiat currency, which means because I said so, it's not something that freely acting market participants through voluntary exchange discovered to be valuable. It's something that Typically, a monopolist on violence says, you will use this or I will hurt you. I will hurt you or I'll put you in jail. So it's under the threat, under the shadow of force that fiat currency is imposed. Well, unsurprisingly, to some extent, like that doesn't work. People don't like to live under the thumb of others. So fiat currency is this twisted tool that they're compelling the demand as I said, under threat of force, but simultaneously violating the supply, right? Either debasing or inflating the supply to enrich themselves. So it's it's only a mechanism for theft. It only does one thing. But you, you could believe this illusion of inflation if you want that, oh, my house is going up every year, but you're, it's an effective deception. You know, you can't, and this is, you know this, you know this, right? In an economy, what are we doing? We're working and trading and innovating to solve problems, right? If there's a real problem, like you want a sandwich or a bunch of people want a sandwich, do you actually think I can just print pieces of paper to feed you? Like it doesn't work. When you print new pieces of paper that are call options on the goods and services in the world, you're just stealing from some. You're stealing from those that are holding that dollar in anticipation of future exchange and giving to whoever you give the money to first to spend it. Like that's all it does. So, I mean, this goes into a whole rabbit hole of why I think inflation, fiat currency, fiat itself is evil. Actually, it's pure evil. It's only a mechanism for theft. It serves no practical function whatsoever. But leaving all that aside, I would say that the people that are reticent to accept this message, first of all, open a history book. It's like, I'm not making this up. The average life of a fiat currency is 27 years. Look for yourself. Understand that there is a great degree of inertia to human thinking and human herd behavior. You know, there's safety in numbers, right? So we're all Mm -hmm. sort of programmed to take cues from those around us. As Tim Ferriss says, we become the average of the five people we spend the most time with. So there's there's some safety there, some perceived evolutionary advantage, but there's also a lot of risk, right? If you just follow the herd, then you're going to lose out on every major historical change ever. Because by definition, it's something that's outside of the, the mainstream view that happens, right? And so... With money in particular, I think it's hard. You asked me about education, like how do I educate people? 
I do my best, right? I actually just, I'm trying to get to the bottom of it. I'm trying to share what I find. But you know what's so crazy about this is that we can spend, educators like myself can spend all of our time trying to educate people about Bitcoin, orange pill them, as we say, you know, describe how, how money emerged, how Bitcoin's the best, blah, blah, blah. Do you know who the number one educator in the world is about Bitcoin? No. Government. <laughs> when a government <laughs> inflates their currency or oppresses their people or taxes their people too much, they become, as you described, mathematically adept, right? They went through it. They experienced the pain, the existential pain of actually living through a hyperinflation. You, nothing works anymore. You become so desperate. Imagine if, the, if you completely severed all ties to the market suddenly. Like you would be desperate. I would be desperate. Like, do you have a farm and beef cattle and like an Apple iPhone plant? And like, can you meet all your needs self-sufficiently? Almost definitely not. And if you can't, then you are dependent on the market. And when the money breaks, the market ceases. So it's really, like, really, really important. And it's, I do my best to educate, but um, as Taleb says, pain is information. And there's no substitute for the pain. So, you know, we beat the drum and we, we try to share the message. But ultimately, I think most people in the herd are going to have to feel the pain. Okay. But let's let's switch it a little bit and talk to the people that want to learn. Let's mm. let's talk to the audience right now that are saying, "I, I want to get involved in this. I, I want to understand it better so that I can get committed to it." I, you know, I'm 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 buying the Kool Aid. I haven't tasted it yet, but I'm definitely buying the Kool Aid. So, for people to want to get exposed to buying into cryptocurrency, what what are the few massive upsides for them? Well, I mean, I would first, just to be very clear, I don't, I hold 100% of my cash balance in Bitcoin. Now, I do hold some US dollars um, just to meet short-term expenditure requirements for the business and myself and whatnot, but I treat Bitcoin like cash. It is, you know, it's gold, it's cash, whatever, it's... it's um, it's the only asset in the world that's independent of everyone else's opinion about it. You can't say that about any other asset in the world, even gold, by the way. If someone, if someone were to figure out how to profitably produce synthetic gold in a lab, then gold as money would fail instantly. So mm -hmm. it's one, one technological breakthrough away from total failure as money even though it's worked perfectly for 5,000 years. Now that may sound like a remote possibility, but it's still, it's a vulnerability to, to well, hold on. Money. Is it, is it so remote? Because when you think about it, they've, they've created synthetic diamonds. Mm -hmm. And again, diamonds have their values too, and arguably for different reasons, but they're created and, and are creating synthetic diamonds, which will become more, um, uh, used in the marketplace and create some confusion and then mm -hmm. some devaluation of that thing. So, so it does, it does happen. So it's not, not impossible, is it? No, not at all. And, um, you can check me on this, but when I looked at this about a year ago, synthetic gold is already 
a thing. Like we can create synthetic gold. We just can't do it profitably, right? We can't produce uh, one ounce of synthetic gold at a cost lower than its market value, but never bet against human ingenuity. Like that's yeah. <laughs> of all the things in human history, you don't want to bet against. That's the number one. Like we keep figuring out this tech thing in some crazy new unima previously unimaginable way. So I say all that to say that it is, in my view, Bitcoin, not crypto. I don't, I don't touch anything else. I've looked at all of it. I've, I've written research reports. I've done valuation deep dives. You know, I ran a hedge fund in the space for, for a number of years that really looked at these projects closely. And I've yet to identify a risk adjusted return on an asset that's better than Bitcoin. Um, I'll, I'll try to unpack that a bit. So Bitcoin's a sub $1 trillion market cap asset today. It's competing to be potentially the premier global store value, the ultimate risk off asset, if you will. Like today it's considered very much risk on, right? Very volatile, speculative, mm -hmm. etc. But it is that only because it is potentially disruptive to gold. And gold is the ultimate risk off asset, right? This is what central banks own and hoard this is what countries go to war over. This is what victorious countries demand tribute be paid in. It yeah. is the it is the pun intended gold standard asset, right? It's the premier asset across all human history. And all Bitcoin needs to do as a sub one trillion dollar asset to disrupt gold and global store value more generally, and you know the the total addressable market for Bitcoin is somewhat debatable. I would say it's a fairly strong consensus that it's well north of a hundred trillion dollars. Um, and it's again, sub one trillion today. I actually think it's wow. more like above 200 trillion. If you look at all global stores of value, all Bitcoin needs to do to disrupt gold and eat a lot of that market share is exactly what it's been doing perfectly for 13 years. It just needs to create a new block every 10 minutes and adhere to a supply cap of 21 million. And by doing that, it's a very simple technology. There's not a lot of bells and whistles to Bitcoin. It's just, it's boring, frankly. <laughs> but when it comes to money, you want boring. You, I want boring. I want the thing that no one can F with. That is my ideal money. So, I only focus on Bitcoin. I do not focus on alternative crypto assets, which I view all other crypto assets as effectively liquid venture capital. You've done a copy paste of Bitcoin and you're now trying to compete with Bitcoin directly, which I think is a fool's errand for a number of reasons, or you're trying to address some other market niche. And I just, you know, money is the most valuable market in the world. So even if every other crypto asset succeeded beyond my wildest imagination, I don't think the combined market cap of all of them would even hold a candle to Bitcoin. So interesting. That would be my first that, piece of advice. That's such Focus a massive that, that that's a massive endorsement, isn't it? Really, you know, because 
obviously anybody getting into this space that's opening up a kraken account a, you know crypto.com binance whatever it may be is getting getting seduced by these these other stories around you know how ethereum does this how solana does that etc and how nfts are the future and they don't know that uh, they really don't know but then the, you know someone will you know produce a bit of content will say if you invested a hundred dollars in solana in january 2021 it would be worth gazillions and squillions right now yeah. um and so how how do people get to a place where where they can disregard all of that and, and call it nonsense. <laughs> uh, I don't, again, I guess the short answer again would be pain, you know, like to go through, I've traded across multiple Bitcoin slash crypto market cycles now, and it is extremely difficult as a former fund manager, the benchmark, by the way, I still talk to dozens of these funds across the world. Their benchmark is buy and hold Bitcoin. And very few of them can outperform buy and hold Bitcoin. Some can, you know, I'd say probably about one in 10 funds can, can outperform buy and hold Bitcoin. But there's a ton of risk involved with that outperformance. You know, not only your own, if you're an LP in the fund, there's counterparty risk there, but then they're taking all kinds of counterparty risk, you know, lending and loaning and staking and borrowing and all these different you know, complex permutations of uh, crypto games, as I call them. But how can someone resist that absent the pain? Um, I don't exactly know. It's it's so alluring, you know, and these narratives are spun up to be so attractive. And it's, oh, it's Web3. It's going to democratize the world and give power to the little man. And, you know, every conceivable marketing ploy you've ever seen is like super concentrated in the crypto world. And they're just representing that all of these things are going to be solved by, you know, typically decentralization, which is such an oxymoron because Bitcoin is the only decentralized crypto asset. It, again, decentralization, meaning specifically resistant to opinion, right? There's no single group or individual in control of the asset, of the rules, of the network, whatever. Only Bitcoin is that. Only Bitcoin is truly, provably, credibly decentralized based on its history. Everything else is borrowing from that narrative to say, oh, we're Ethereum, we're decentralized, we're going to be the world's computer, we're going to be this, we're going to be that. And there, here's, the, here's where it gets really twisted because you're selling these narratives into a market that is denominated in fiat currency, right? People, most people still in this world are hyper-focused on their dollar-denominated gains and net worth position. Yeah. Well, guess what happens when you inflate and debase the currency? If inflation's whatever, the official number, I think in the U.S. is 7% now, right? CPI, yeah. which is a total bullshit number. It's handicapped by probably a factor of three at least. Let's just assume it's 7% being conservative. You now have to generate returns of at least 7% to break even in your dollar denominated position. So what does this mean? This means that inflation is forcing economic actors further out along the risk curve. And you see this at every level, right? Endowments are taking on leverage. Uh, 
you know, every large capital pool in the world is taking on increasingly exotic investment positions in an attempt to generate a real return, which is an actual rate of return, less net of inflation, right? 10% less 7% 3%. So what, what happens with inflation is that it induces a gambling behavior. It induces market actors to be more risk-taking, more gambling. And what are these crypto assets doing exactly? They are singing the siren song of these asymmetric returns. We're the next Bitcoin. We're the next this. We're 10,000x. We're going to solve every problem in the world. We're the ultimate NFT. So it is, um, it's a very pernicious problem, you know, that people are thinking in dollars. Yeah. It induces them to gamble. And these are the ultimate gambling devices. But beneath See, all of the, this BS is just is digital gold. That's the only real play that, that I see in the market. It's really interesting you say that, you know, you've got, you've got the combination of, of greed and ignorance that, mm -hmm. that play a part. Right. And, you know, I, I remember I come from a wealth management background, so I, I, I've lived a life 30 years of talking to people about six, eight, 10% returns. Mm -hmm. Well, if you talk to anybody nowadays about six, eight, 10% returns, they're like, <laughs> right. No, thanks, mate. And and you're right. It's leading them down the path of them feeling that they need to make, you know, just the, the, what did the FTSE make? 18%. The, the Dow made, I don't know, 20% last year and NASDAQ a bit more. And and that, that fits into their norm now. But then the mm -hmm. comparison is then to the 70% of Bitcoin and the gazillion percents of these others. And so that they, and they're not assessing the risk. Mm-hmm. They just they just they just sucked in seduced into the to the greed is good type of mentality, uh, wanting to get things working for them. Mm -hmm. mm. It's really interesting that you bring that up. Okay, so basically, rule number one. Okay, if we were to follow Robert's instructions or our education, it's bitcoins. Bitcoins that the number well, one and uh, and only we should consider. I want to be clear that I don't. One of the things I really try to do in my work, and you asked about education, is I don't want to be dogmatic about Bitcoin necessarily. I'm happy to share with you the findings I found for myself, but it's based yeah. on my homework, my study. So what I recommend and advocate for first with everyone is do your own homework and your own study. Like your portfolio construction should reflect your convictions. I'm not here to sell you Bitcoin. I don't give a shit. You go do whatever you want. I'm here to compete with you actually as a pure capitalist. I'm going to hold the money that I think is best. You can go and hold whatever you want. I make no moral judgments about what you hold. However, if you want to ask about what I found, I'm happy to share that. That's what I do, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's the education component. Yeah. One thing I'd like to add here. So you said the six, eight, 10 returns that that's gone now, right? That yeah. itself, this is, that is a manifestation of the inflation mind virus that I described earlier. Literally, the, the U.S. dollar yeah. is an SQL database maintained on premise at the Federal Reserve. And we can up that database can be updated at an effortless keystroke of I think we need seven governors approval that impacts four billion people worldwide. They can add as many zeros as is necessary and steal literally confiscate wealth from all dollar users worldwide and reallocate it at their own discretion. When they do that, they are disrupting the economic calculus of all market actors denominating themselves in dollars in a way like you just described, right? 
used to be 6810. That would be great. I could live on that. 6810 is nothing now. You need, I don't know what you need now, 20, 30, 40, I guess, to, yeah. to just tread water. And so here's the weird thing about that is, okay, everyone's being forced out further along the risk curve due to inflation. Mm -hmm. What's at the furthest end of the risk curve today? I guess you could say it's like crypto and NFTs and all this, but um, for reasons we've already outlined, I don't think that works long-term. The thing that is at the end of that risk curve that I do think works long-term is Bitcoin, right? It's the ultimate risk on asset today. But as we said, only because it is competing to be the ultimate risk off asset, which is to say more trust minimized, safe, stable investment than gold itself. So this, I'm, what I'm trying to throw a light on here is the self-defeating nature of fiat currency and central banking. It's like the more dollars you print to try and paper over whatever economic bad decision you've made, you're just fueling and accelerating the success of Bitcoin. So Bitcoin's like a stone falling from this risk on asset down to this position of ultimate risk off asset. And in that way, I've one of the simplest ways to describe Bitcoin is like, it's just an insurance policy on central banking or fiat currency. The more dollars they print or the more whatever fiat they print, the more valuable that policy becomes. You know, it's interesting so you say that because for me, I think a lot of people are oblivious to, to the printing of money. You know, that they, they don't necessarily understand, first of all, um, why it's done. Um, but, but secondly, they pay no attention to um, the fact that they've got a free reign to do that as much as they want. And we're not talking about developing countries here with third world currencies. We're talking about the biggest countries in the world. Every country. The biggest. Yeah. And so the ability for a government to switch that on whenever they want to mm. should put should put the fear of God into anyone. Agreed. I mean, again, you you know this in business, right? You know, um, the main thrust of business is to keep your options open. So if you are ever beholden to the opinion of someone in a contract or a situation, uh, whatever, like you, you have less leverage, you have less wherewithal to act as you see fit, right? You are at, you are subject to the discretion of someone else. That's a position you do not want to be in, in business, period, no matter what the situation. You want to be independent, right? You want to be well-heeled, a lot of equity, low debt, high net worth position gives me the basis and foundation to move and act and be opportunistic as I see fit in the world. And then when there is some type of economic crash and there's a forced seller or someone's getting liquidated on a, on a position, well, now I can use my equity base to go in and buy them out cheap, right? And further increase my position. This is the name of the game. Mm -hmm. We all get that. If you're, if you're an entrepreneur, you've been in business, whatever, you get that. But what you haven't done is taken that principle and looked at money, like money itself. Who are you vulnerable to in that base position? We think holding dollars is such a great safe position, but, but it's not. You are always incurring this counterparty risk to the fed and it gets beyond that too there's a euro dollar system that's like an offshore derivative system of 
the dollar that the Fed doesn't even control. Like it's become a real Frankenstein. But I guess but you, actually, hold on a minute because this is really yeah. interesting. People will think holding dollars is risk adverse. They'll think that crypto is risk. But when I talk to people like you, you are generally some of the most cautious people that exist. You're not. You're not a risk. You know, pursuer. It's almost like I don't want risk. Get risk away from me. I want to do the safest thing I can with my money because guess what? I'm a human being too, and I want to live a nice life and I want to have a nice retirement, etc. But people can't correlate that, can they? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, again, it, for me, it boils down to that question. Like, you really need to understand the nature of money, the nature of the counterparty risk that are inherent to fiat currency, the nature of inflation. You know, people just look past inflation. Um, and yeah, for me, I'd, I guess I've built a career on taking calculated risk, but I tend to err on the conservative side. Like maybe it's just the CFO in me. I just want to be low debt, high equity position. I don't think I know. I don't know an an accounting and finance major on the planet. That's a, that's a crazy risk taker. I mean, (laughs) it's drilled into you when you're younger, you know, when you study this subject. So, you know, I don't think I know an accountant that would say, yeah, let's go for it. Come on, close your eyes and just, you know, to the wind. But what you're hitting on here is important because Bitcoin, again, like it is viewed as a super risky speculative thing. But I would just share my own experience and learnings. Like I now, I view Bitcoin as the safest asset that I could possibly hold. It's the yeah, only yeah. asset that's independent of every human's opin- every human's opinion on Earth. You can pass any law you want. You can you can do whatever you want. Start a war. Like it doesn't matter. You're not going to change 21 million Bitcoin. You're not going to change the core protocol rules. So I know that. If I hold, for instance, say a thousand Bitcoin, I have a guaranteed fraction of the total money supply. And that's what gold approximated historically. It's like you could hold some gold and you knew the total supply would only change about 2% per year. So you had a 2% error. Well, Bitcoin just took that to zero. There's 0% error in Bitcoin. You know, full stop, the fully diluted cap table, if you will, of Bitcoin, you know what it is and everyone else knows what it is. So it becomes the the premier, most desirous asset in history, in my opinion. And so what's going to play out at the end of the day, you know, you roll forward another 10 years that this, this it's going to be proven that this is the safest place to put your money. And the people that bought into that philosophy and that theory, you know, now or a few years back um, are the people that have reaped the rewards. You know, I'd say time will tell. I don't have a crystal ball. I just have a bunch of old books that I like to read and study and learn. And I keep challenging myself, by the way. And the the other thing that makes me very bullish on Bitcoin is all of the counter narratives seem to be drying up. There's just no one intelligent left with a counter narrative that doesn't involve. Really, the main argument is governments will never let it happen. And my main rebuttal is. Please tell me how, please tell me how they turn it off. It's just, I mean, I run, I have a full node. That means I have Bitcoin's entire history right here on my full node. There are tens of thousands of full nodes around the world. Unless you obliterate all of them simultaneously, then Bitcoin's 
persist. So it's just an idea, you know, we've seen, I, I wrote a piece on this called the number zero in Bitcoin. It's a bit of a rabbit hole, but there's a reason we all use a zero based numeral system today. And it was not because governments decided it was useful. It's because entrepreneurs decided a zero based numeral system was more efficient and more wealth generative to them. And basically that mathematical system, just an idea, it outcompeted everything else. And that's all Bitcoin is. It's just an idea. So how do you point a gun at an idea? I interviewed a guy called Metakovin. I don't know if you've heard of him before. He was a young lad, a young lad from India that had nothing basically, learned to code on his on his buddy's laptop you know he used to take his usb stick over there and he heard about bitcoin back in 2011 2012 and people were laughing about it saying what a load of nonsense and he said to me and this this this, this kid's what 30 years old he's a billionaire now out of, he was the guy that bought people's nft um mm. for 69 million dollars so he says um everyone was laughing at it and and, and i always know that when everyone's laughing at something there's got to be something to it so i'm, I'm kind of i'm inquisitive i want to learn more and he you know he, he comes from a poor family so it's not like he had a lot of money but every penny he earned once he learned how to code he was he was just buying bitcoin buying bitcoin buying bitcoin and he's gone on to have a hugely successful portfolio really humble guy lovely guy and i said to him why is why do people like warren buffett say no this is nonsense he said you have to understand that Everybody has their lane. Mm -hmm. And no matter what, what, what when, when people have their lane and they have an area of focus and something that they know about, invariably they're going to lean into that area anyway. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be hard for them to embrace something completely different or something new. He said, you could just take the, the, the you know, the tech companies that started out back in the late nineties, mm -hmm. you know, that there were just people that, that, that couldn't couldn't get on board they just couldn't get out of their own lane to accept it until after the event and it had happened and mm -hmm. you know he said there's no point trying to convince those people mm. they just he said it's it's it just becomes painful you know it's a no-win mm. scenario for you he said so it's better that you try and give more education and more knowledge to people that care about it, want to know about it, are open-minded enough to explore yeah. it because they're the people that invariably, if they see sense in that kind of stuff, will adopt it. I'm assuming you agree with that because of your frustrations <laughs> that you get trying to teach people. <laughs> well, no, it's an excellent, excellent viewpoint on his part. And, you know, this is the essence of the economy, actually. We all specialize. And we mm -hmm. trade with one another and we all benefit from our, the collective benefits from individual specialization. But what does that mean? I mean, it's like, okay, each one of us gets really good at our craft or stays in our lane as he's describing, but that comes with a trade-off of not knowing everyone else's specialization or everyone else's uh, lane, right? So, and I, I would add with, with Buffett, there's a, the element of incentive blindness you know, 40% mm -hmm. of Berkshire's portfolio, last I looked, this was probably a year ago, were large banks. Um, mm -hmm. I've heard they've divested some of that since they've acquired some physical gold, you know, they're dealing with the inflation, like everyone else They're what's mm -hmm. going on here. Um, but, you know, as we started this conversation, it's um, Bitcoin is worldview shattering. 
this is the Bitcoin rabbit hole. This is the essence of the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And this is why no one has found the bottom of the Bitcoin rabbit hole, because you start to look at the entire history of humanity, specifically over the civilizations of the past 5,000 years where gold started to emerge as money at first in certain pockets, resisted by some outcompeted by those that resisted it, etc., And then eventually it globalized. That is the most important tool in human history. It bootstrapped capitalism itself. The reason we are having this conversation, the reason Apple computers created this laptop for me to have this conversation with you is because it inherited a flow of um, economic surplus and abundance from capitalism itself, which was bootstrapped by the existence of gold. So gold is the most important thing we have ever used as a species in terms of increasing the standard of living and aggregate wealth. And now, and that, that alone is crazy, right? Most people will be like, what do you mean? Keynes told me it was a barbarous relic. Like, it's just a stupid rock. It doesn't do anything. But the idea of having an asset that was counterparty resistant, immune to the opinions of others, something that was beyond the control of man. It's so important that we have something beyond our own control so that we have a fair and equitable rule set to play by. If we can bend and twist the rules, that's a problem. Because if I can mm -hmm. make the rules of the game, I can win in perpetuity. And nobody likes that. No one wants to play that game where you can't win, right? No one wants to fucking play that game. So what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin's this disruptive digital technology to gold, the most important innovation in human history, gold, that is an unchangeable rule set. It's a set of rules that none of us can twist to our own benefit. So if I can't make the rules or violate your property, to become wealthy, then my only productive strategy is to be an entrepreneur, to engage instead of, I can't engage in taking from you. Therefore, my incentives are shifted towards making, which is, you know, long-term trade, entrepreneurship, innovation, etc. So Bitcoin is like this paradigmatic shift on the entire incentive landscape for humanity forever. And that's why, <laughs> back to your original question, why, did no, why does nobody get it? Nobody gets it. I don't get it. What is Bitcoin? I have no idea. I'm trying to describe it 10,000 different ways through all these analogies, but it's <laughs> something we've never seen before. It's about the only thing you can say of it. Um, and maybe to call it money is to disparage Bitcoin in a way because it's there are dimensions to it that are bigger than money as well. So yeah, I guess we'll say time will tell. Robert, I can't. Thank you enough for your time. It's been great talking to you. I could sit and spend the next two or three hours with you. It's, it's genuinely, it's just a wonderful conversation to have with someone as, as, as bright as you that has taken so much time to learn as much as you have. So for everybody that's listening, how do they go about following you? Tell us about your podcast and so, because they're going to want to listen to your stuff now. So what is it called and how can they get on it? Spencer, thanks so much for having me. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity just to... Um just to share, you know, um, the name of the show is the what is money show. And we're pretty much going down that rabbit hole of, you know, what is money? 
Um, but I'm talking to a lot of interesting people. My, my, my aim is to speak with the most intelligent, most interesting people in the world and really unravel the mysteries of money and trade and value. Um, the, you know, the history of government and anthropology, energy, technology, it just, it goes on. It just gets into everything. You can't, you can't ask the question, what is money and not run into everything because we need money to do everything that we do. So I feel very grateful to have connected my passion with my profession. This is something I would do for free, frankly. Uh, my friends have always made fun of me that I love to do homework and now I get to do homework for a living. Um, <laughs> you guys can find me. I, I'm on Twitter um, at breedlove22, which is uh, at B-R-E-E-D-L-O-V-E-2-2. That's my last name. And there's links to the show and everything there. Uh, and my DMs are open. I'm happy to engage and, and talk about these topics. That, um, that's important. I'll, okay, I'll so leave people... you with this, this, this quote, actually, that in addition to my conversation with Sailor, which he's a huge advocate of education, mm -hmm. this other quote that I discovered from H.G. Wells was really instrumental in my career pivot towards education. And he said that, this is H.G. Wells, civilization is a race between education and catastrophe. And it feels like we are on the edge of one of the two right now, either civilization or catastrophe. And I'm just hoping to push, you know, education in a way that pushes us towards civilization. So that's why I do what I do. Ladies and gentlemen, the awesome Robert Breedlove. Well, there you have it. The awesome Robert Breedlove. I promise you I could sit for hours and hours and talk to him. He's so wise and he's so well-educated and he's willing to share as much. So go follow that podcast that he's mentioned. It's important. If you want to learn about money, you listen to it. If you enjoyed this show, which I hope you do because you're sitting here listening at the end, then please do me a favor. If you're on iTunes right now, then just leave a five-star rating. If you're on any other podcast app, please, please, please show some love. It really is appreciated. I can't tell you that enough. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can click over there and get more episodes of the podcast, or you can click here and you can subscribe. Costs you nothing. What you're going to get is access to all of our content on a regular basis. As and when I produce it, it's going to come straight to you, straight to your inbox. So I'd love you to do that. Do that if you want, but I'd love you to do that and become part of our community. Thanks very much for joining us on the show today, and I will see you very soon. Are you worried about food security? Our sponsor, Smartcast, is... And just hear this for a second. If we continue to farm the way we do, we'll not be able to feed the 10 billion people that are going to be on this planet by 2050. Climate change and overpopulations resulted in outdated and unsustainable farming practices, significant price increases, as you know, a pesticide contamination, instability in the food supply chain. And what Smartcast do is they seek to eradicate the food problems in the world. They provide food security as a service. It believes food and water should be a basic human right. And I agree with that. Smartcast's solution is simple. They design, they build, they own and operate smart farms. And they can feed 10 billion people by 2050 for sure. Go check them out. They're a great sponsor for the podcast. 
the people behind the company are just an incredible bunch of people and i'm going to get them on the show for you to learn about what they're doing in due course but for now i'll see you soon